The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Live from our nation's capital, it's Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Hi, I'm Brad Bannon, the host of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. I'm a national democratic strategist, columnist for The Messenger in Washington, DC, and a political analyst for news radio station KNX in Los Angeles. You can read my columns in The Messenger at muckrack.com front slash Brad Bannon front slash articles. My company, Bannon Communications Research, polled for progressive issue groups, labor unions, and Democrats. Mondays on Deadline DC, I talk to the people and players behind the politics and policies that drive our great nation forward. Uh, today, uh, we have a great a bunch of guests, including our intrepid executive producer, Mark Grimaldi, who keeps the show online, uh, and me on time, which is not an easy thing to do. Today on the show, we have two great guests, uh, Sarah Jones, editor-in-chief of politicus.com, uh, joins us to discuss the uh, not-so-great uh, Republican debate. Then in the second half hour, Hope Fry, the founder of Project Lifeline, joins us to discuss the uh, inhumane treatment of immigrants at the Mexican border. Uh, before we get to our first guest, though, we're going to listen to Ali Velshi on MSNBC talking about the GOP candidate's pledge of support for Donald Trump. You all signed a pledge to support the eventual Republican nominee. If former President Trump is convicted in a court of law, would you still support him as your party's choice? Please raise your hand if you would. Vivek, Vivek Ramaswamy's hand went up like fast as it absolutely could. Uh, it was interesting to watch. We'll probably play it again. Uh, Ron DeSantis sort of checking around to see who else was raising their hand and then sort of putting his hand up about halfway. This is the state of the presidential campaign of the party of Abraham Lincoln in a world where the Republican frontrunner has been indicted four times this year and faces 91 felony counts. In a world where the Republican frontrunner stands accused of racketeering, conspiracy, obstruction and charges related to the continued effort and the coordinated effort to overturn a pre presidential election, thus ending the American small-D democratic experiment. Abraham Lincoln went to war to keep this nation together, but for most of the Republicans on that stage last night, a full-throated condemnation of Donald Trump remains too much. Uh, that was Ali Velshi, uh, MSNBC, talking about the, uh, G the support of the GOP candidates last week at the big debate uh, for their disgraced uh, president, Donald Trump. Uh, watching the first uh, GOP national debate was a lot like going to a Bruce Springsteen concert. 
and having to settle for watching the E Street Band because the boss was somewhere doing a solo gig. Our guest in this half hour is Sarah Jones, editor-in-chief of Politicus.com, PoliticusUSA.com. Uh, she's here to talk about the Republican presidential race after the not-so-great debate uh, last week. Sarah, welcome back to Deadline DC. Thank you so much for having me, Brad. It's great to be here. Well, it's great to have you here. Well, let's start. You know, one of the things I uh, chuckled at in that clip was it was true uh, when they asked the uh, candidates whether they'd uh, vote for Donald Trump if he's the nominee. Uh, Ron DeSantis, before raising his hand, uh, looked around to see what everybody else was doing, yeah. which I think is a telling uh, point about his candidacy. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> you know, was last week just sideshow uh, because the big dog wasn't there. Uh, Donald Trump was doing off doing his thing with Tucker Carlson on a platform called X, formerly known as Twitter. Uh, you know, was it worth watching without the big guy there? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I don't think that it was necessarily a sideshow in the sense that it really did give America a little glimpse into um, are there any policies that this party will discuss? So we saw a little bit of where they're at and it really isn't very pretty. And I do want to preface everything that we say about this debate with the fact that none of those people, um, because they signed um, a pledge to support, you know, what looks to be Donald Trump, um, the eventual winner, they don't. They should not be even considered to be candidates. If we were living in normal political times, none of them would even be considered because he did. You know, he stands accused of of inciting insurrection against his country. So, for that matter, I, I mean, I just I just think it's so important because I I keep hearing this discussed and debated on um, cable and not. A lot of mention about how far we have moved. You know, the goalpost keeps moving. I don't think there's even an end. We may end up off the cliff. I don't know. Uh, we might already be off the cliff and we don't know it because we're never getting, you know, these kind of stakes in the ground that say, hey, wait, we passed this moment. So this was this moment. I, I still found it um, really depressing to watch in the sense that uh, nobody um had the courage to stand up to even admit that climate change is real nobody had the courage to say no i won't support donald trump um you know uh only two people managed to say they wouldn't support him if he were convicted of this you know attempt to steal the votes of what i would i keep pointing this out the majority of the country voted for joe biden Donald Trump tried to overthrow that election along with many people, some of whom are in elected office still. And, you know, supporting that, that's that's what they've become. And I think that that's worth, it really needs to be focused on, that this is not okay. It's not okay for any of these people to be saying they would support him after this. I know that doesn't yeah, really answer the question, but. Yeah, and the worst part of it, when you talk about uh, Asha Hutchinson, and uh, Chris Christie, 
think it's interesting that the two candidates uh, who were, you know, willing to criticize Trump were both former U.S. attorneys, which I think is an interesting, not not so coincidence. And every time Hutchinson or Christie uh, spoke up against uh, Trump's crimes, trying to steal the election, uh, they were booed. And in my column in the messenger said it was like they were uh, temperan- uh, pro, you know, uh, volunteers from the Women's Temperance Union walking into a bar uh, and trying to stop people from drinking. They were constantly booed anytime they made any kind of mention of criticism of Trump, which is a sad commentary on Republican primary voters. Uh, let's say, you know, I... MSNBC just released a poll that showed Trump's lead uh, slump for a few points uh, after the debate. Uh, do you think he'll show up at the next one on September 27th, which is a little less than a month from now? Well, you know, he said that he wouldn't. Um, but as we all know, Donald Trump's word is worth nothing. But this is what he said on his Truth Social um, a little while ago, he said he wasn't going to be doing, quote, the debate. And he also threatened that he will not be debating Joe Biden. So apparently um, new rules. Donald Trump doesn't have to do anything. He's- yeah, OK, well, uh, you know, uh, you know, I guess he that means he's going to go on with Tucker Carlson again. I don't know how many people uh, listen to that exchange. Uh, I know about 13 well, and a half million watched the Republican debate. Uh, there was a, let me ask you, you know, uh, one question. Way, let me ask you uh, another question about Trump on yeah. the subject. Do you think he's going to be the Republican nominee? Um, as of this moment, yes. Um, they the Republican primary voters don't care about the indictments. Um, none of the other candidates are really that interesting to them. And I do talk about this quite a bit again, you know, here. In Trump land, not a lot of interest in Ron DeSantis. I think that people, some uh, Republican primary voters, are sort of making noise about Vivek Ramashami. And part of that is that they love to claim that they're not racist. And this is just another opportunity for them to do that. That doesn't mean that they would vote for him. Doesn't mean he's going to win the primary. Um, and so ultimately, you know, if Donald Trump is not in jail or even maybe even if he is in jail he will be there there we can only hope Uh, sarah we have to come to a brief stop here uh because we uh, have to let out our radio listeners for a couple minutes uh but i'll be continuing the interview with sarah jones uh editor-in-chief of politicususa.com we come back from this very quick break Welcome back. Our guest in this half hour is Sarah Jones, editor-in-chief of PoliticusUSA.com. We've been talking about the Republican presidential race uh, and the Republican, the first Republican national GOP debate uh, last week. Uh, we, uh, by the way, for our radio listeners, if you'd like to watch us as well as listen to us, uh, there are different ways you could do that. Uh, you can watch the show as well as listen to it. 
uh, on twitter.com front slash Brad Bannon or on facebook.com front slash deadline DC with Brad Bannon front slash videos. Uh, and now back to the Republicans. Uh, Sarah, before we uh, took the short break, we were talking about the Republican uh, candidate on abortion. Uh, there's a lot of evidence that there, that the Dodd decision, which uh, overturned Roe versus Wade, uh, killed uh, probably a great opportunity the Republicans had uh, to take complete control of both houses of Congress, uh, but they couldn't stop talking about it. Uh, since then, states in the uh, Mountain West and the South have been uh, leapfrogging each other to impose uh, new abortion bans, uh, but they can't stop talking about it. Are they just a captive of their base? And do they have any idea how much damage the discussion of abortion is doing to their uh, chances to win the White House um, and the Senate in 2024? Well, somebody among them must know, but they don't. it doesn't seem to be trickling up into um, their actual candidates or whoever's running their campaign policy platforms. Because, But on the other hand, why are they only talking about abortion? It's the only win they've had in a long time. Um, and I think that's why they're there. They know they're going to these are people they would kind of been reduced. They're not leaders anymore. They're people chasing the worship of the base that Donald Trump has. And the only way to chase that is to be in line to get the base to, as, as you already pointed out, they were booing these candidates when, when they spoke the truth. And when they said anything intelligent, they got booed. And so what they're doing is they're just catering down, 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 lower and lower and lower to this base to try to get some kind of approval. Um, it's very pathetic. It's not good leadership at all. It kind of would make you question whether they should be in a leadership position. But then I do wonder about the people running the campaigns. They know the numbers. They know why Republicans lost 2022 abortion and election denial. So why are they back at hammering both of those? Because those are the two issues they're based love. That's yeah, and I a- think there's another reason, too. You know, as scary as it seems, I think you're going to see the Republicans continue uh, to uh, talk about abortion. Um, I think you're going to see them a lot uh, talk about, uh, you know, uh, criticize the Biden policy on immigration at the Mexican border. Uh, I think you're going to see a lot of China bashing. Um, For instance, Nikki Haley uh, is running ads in the early primary states, uh, which accuses of uh, Biden of being soft on China. Um, Tim Scott's running an ad in the early primary states of Iowa and New Hampshire that shows him standing at the uh, Mexican border uh, pledging to finish the Trump wall uh, and again accusing uh, the Biden administration of letting drugs come in uh, with the immigrants at the Mexican border. And, you know, one of the reasons why you're going to see them harp on these issues, I think, and I'd like your opinion on this, is because they really can't talk much about the economy anymore. I mean, the reality is the economy under uh, Joe Biden's leadership is getting better. 
Uh, he's created more than 13 million jobs. Have The economy has created more than 13 million jobs since Joe Biden became president. Uh, inflation is uh, is uh, going down. Uh, They're going to really harp, I think, on, you know, non-economic issues like abortion uh, and immigration in China because they don't have anything else to talk about. I absolutely agree with that. And I do think we're already seeing the, the, uh, them hitting him over the border. And, you know, some of what they attack him for has no basis. In fact, um, today they've started an investigation into his response to the wildfires in in uh, Maui. And, you know, I did a call with the White House. They turned that around. They got that approval done in 63 minutes. You're not going to see that. We haven't seen that kind of response. You know, it's just really incredible confidence. What are these people? I was asking myself that with every candidate on that stage. Any of these people, are they competent? Will they show up and know how to handle all of these different things that the executive branch needs to handle? Um, Do they know who to ask to even be in their cabinet that's competent? You know, that's a question for uh, Ramaswamy, for example. So I do think that's why they hammer on the, the easy hits, the culture war, but they also make up things about the economy. They're still going on about that. They find a way, like one little thing that they control at, to say, this is what we're going to attack over. Instead of being a part of a solution for the American people. And one thing we didn't hear a lot of, and we're not going to hear a lot of, which is your point, is actually where they stand on policies. What are they going to do uh, to help people if they want to talk about the economy? What are their plans? Tax cuts for the rich haven't worked for people. Are they going to throw that out again? Because they don't seem to have any other plan. They keep talking about that, doing more of that, um, opening things up so people don't have to be unionized. You know, these are the kinds of talking points that that just simply um, are landing flat. People know better by now. It's been a long time. I mean, I'm sure there's people who are going to buy it, but it's not something they get independence. And that's what where they're really going to get stuck here. All this catering to the base, you know, how are they going to get independence over when the primary's done? Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, one of the things that dis- uh, depress- uh, depresses me is despite all Trump's legal problems and, you know, he's got indictments and tr- scheduled trials stacked up, uh, you know, longer than uh, the line of planes at O'Hare Airport. Uh, why is Joe Biden, why did the national polls show Joe Biden and Donald Trump in a close race, basically even? I, I mean, my only answer to that is the way the media covers um, Joe Biden and the way they're covering this administration and, and how difficult it is to get anywhere by being effective and competent and not a drama king. And that's really Joe Biden's problem. He's not a drama king. He's not out creating chaos every day and giving the media something else to talk about. They don't want to talk about policy because people don't read it. So here we are. Well, here we are, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more. Sarah, thanks for joining us. Our guest in this half hour was a frequent guest and a friend of the show, uh, Sarah Jones, editor-in-chief of politicususa.com. 
We'll be back with more of Deadline DC right after this very short break. Welcome back to Batman. Our guest in this half hour is Hope Fry, the founder of Project Lifeline. Uh, we're going to talk immigration uh, in this half hour. It's still a sore spot with me. It's one of the issues uh, among many that disturbs me greatly. Uh, but before we get to our guest, uh, we're going to play this clip uh, on storms uh, that are gathering in the Caribbean. It's official. A major hurricane is headed straight for the U.S. Right now, we have two huge storms in the Atlantic Ocean. Hurricane Franklin is about to become a Category 4 with 140 mile per hour winds. But thankfully, it looks like it's going to stay away from land. However, soon-to-be Hurricane Idalia down here south of Cuba has very different plans. At this moment, this storm is undergoing what we call rapid intensification. And it's happening over these record warm waters between the Gulf of Mexico and the Caribbean Sea. And it's going to continue to strengthen as it makes a a beeline for western Florida. The official forecast right now is a major Category 3 hurricane making landfall around 8 a.m. Wednesday the 30th somewhere between Tampa and Apalachicola. But because of these record warm sea surface temperatures, I think it could be even more intense than that. I do expect that there are going to be massive evacuations throughout Florida over the next day or so. So if you live in this area, don't be scared, be prepared, and start making preparations now. There are thousands of scientists, meteorologists, and communicators in the background working working diligently to make sure that you have all the information you need. Okay, uh, that is the latest on the uh, tropical storms uh, coming up through the Atlantic Ocean and the Caribbean. And you're probably wondering why I'm playing the weather report when today's topic is immigration. Well, to answer that and other questions about uh, the situation at the Mexican border, our guest in this half hour is Hope Fry. Uh, founder and co-executive director of Project Lifeline. Uh, Hope, thanks for coming back on the Deadline DC. Thank you, Brad. I'm always excited to be with you. Well, we're always excited to have you with us. Uh, now, uh, Hope, maybe you can, you know, you gave me this idea. We chatted before the show and you said we should talk about climate change. And I thought to myself, why? But then it made a lot of sense to me. Uh, what do these storms that are frequently uh, sweeping across the Caribbean have to do uh, with uh, uh, the uh, situation at the Mexican border? Well, Brad, I'm going to shift this slightly just to talk about kids, because I think when we do the discussion about immigration, we tend to think of it as family units or um unaccompanied adults, but one of the groups that's most Im impacted by the shifting of climate are children. And children on the move is one of the biggest topics that the United Nations has today. There are 2.3 billion children today in the world. Half of those children globally are impacted by climate conditions. So if you think about that, if half of the children in the world are impacted by climate conditions, that's a huge number of people. 9.8 million are uh, weather-related, internally displaced people, and 50 million kids are forced to leave their countries. Why are they doing it? Well, 
conditions, uh, all conditions, but particularly conditions for agriculture and fishing. If you can't eat, you can't stay. In Guatemala, 80% of all indigenous children are malnourished. Why are they malnourished? There's no food. Okay. Uh, oh, uh, you, th you know, do you think that, uh, it, you know, if, if you're right about that, the problem's going to get worse because the climate is presenting more and more weather disasters all the time. So is this situation just going to keep getting worse? I think absolutely, Brad. And the countries that are most affected, if you look um, Venezuela, and you look at the uh, Northern Triangle countries of Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras, um, you see the direct impact of continued unusual weather conditions, floods and droughts, and they're not getting better. Climate change is a real thing, and climate conditions continue to worsen the hurricane story. How many hurricanes have we had this year in the United States alone? So if continues, if, if conditions continue deteriorating, immigration is going to continue increasing. And then you combine that with unstable governments. And the government, you look at Venezuela, for example, the government's been unstable for years. You can't live in Venezuela. So we've seen a huge uptick in Venezuelan migration. And it's connected, weather and, and governments. And it's not going. It's not going to end. It's going to get worse. Okay. Uh, well, let's. Uh, before we go any further, let me ask you to give us a status update on at the Mexican border. Now, I, you know, this is what I follow from news reports. Is there's less. Uh, there are fewer people coming across the Mexican border than there were. Uh, what are conditions like there? Well, that's a good question. Conditions are flatly horrible. People have been stranded on the Mexican side of the border for months, some for years. Cartel activity has dramatically increased. And that means that people are robbed and raped, children are, and women are trafficked um, in increasing numbers. People don't have money, so they don't have food. They don't have places to stay, so they're living on the street. They don't have basic hygiene, so they're getting sick. They don't have money for medical care, so they're dying. Um, so, and the other thing that's happening is um, we've got some multi-collaborations going on that are really extraordinarily cruel. And one of them is that the Mexican government is taking people that are along the border or close to the border, people who are coming up, and putting them in buses and taking them deep into the interior of Mexico. Now, Mexico's got a pretty easy-to-access program if you're somewhere where there's immigration. You can get a year humanitarian visa here one year only with work permission, but there are no jobs. So people are taken away from the border and put in the middle of nowhere with nothing. Okay. Uh, let's uh, try, you know, one of the, I remember, I think the first time uh, we reached out to you to be on the show several years ago was I was watching these report news television news reports about uh, children being separated on the border. Uh, is that still happening um, from their families? That's a great pivot to Operation Lone Star. This is the brazenly cruel practice and policy of Governor Abbott of Texas that he put in place two years ago 
under the emergency disaster legislation for the state of Texas, claiming that people coming across the border constituted a number of, of emergencies. And what he's done most recently is to string a thousand feet of four foot round buoys across the Rio Grande River outside of Eagle Pass, Texas. Um, these buoys are anchored by, I think, um, 68 concrete blocks, and then at the bottom there's net. They're so slippery, and they've got wire across the top that you can't get your arms across, so you can't hold the buoy and get on the other side of it. You can't swim under it because there are concrete barriers and nets. And then in the same area, he strung concertina wire. A concertina wire is, you know, extremely, extraordinarily dangerous. So he's put these two um, inhumane barriers that he thinks will keep people out. Well, one of the things it's done is to push people to other places. And this year, the highest place of immigration is in the Tucson sector. Tucson is takes the whole of Arizona. Um, Compossums and Border Patrol is broken into nine sectors, and Eagle Pass is in the Del Rio sector, and then Tucson is in the Arizona sector. 110 degrees every day, it's desert conditions, and they're arresting 3,000 people a day coming across the desert. And that's the other thing. Desert area has increased and temperatures have increased, making the trip more dangerous. You talk about, about climate. Um, they're finding people, they're finding people dead in the, around Eagle Pass. I think there were 20 bodies found in July, not just the ones we read about in the river. And there are more dying in the desert outside of Tucson. So, you know, you just pivot it to another place and you just kill people differently. Yeah, you know, th this whole situation at the border, I, I think, is just horrifying. Well, let me, you know, the Biden administration, I believe, has filed suit in federal court. No, has, you know, wants the state of Texas and Governor Abbott uh, for, to take these obstacles out of the out of the Rio Grande. Uh, and doesn't uh, the federal government have a legitimate complaint here. The Constitution says uh, that uh, immigration is uh, responsibility of the federal government and the state. Hope I'm going to ask you to hang on to this question because we've got to take a short break for our radio listeners. We'll be back with more of uh, Deadline DC with Brad Bannon right after these messages and we won't be gone long. Welcome back with more of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Our guest in this half hour is Hope Fry, uh, founder and co-executive director of Project Lifeline. Uh, Hope, let me ask you this. What would, in your mind, what would a responsible border policy be? You know, you know Brad, I, if I had the answer to that, um, I, would be, I would be all over the place. I, you know, the border is a huge problem and it has been a huge problem, not not recently. Border Patrol was was created in 1920. Yep. Uh, 
you know, is there any hope that the federal government in conjunction with states will ever, you know, th- this is just, seems to me there are several problems that the United States is ignoring. Climate change, uh, you know, corruption in government, uh, border policy, which I think is a larger policy about, uh, um, you know, people uncomfortable with the changes in culture, uh, many of whom uh, seem to re- be Republicans. Uh, you know, let, let's say they put you in charge, Hope. What would you like to see happen at the border? Well, the first thing I would do is I would take proposals by um, Kids in Need of Defense and the Young Center, which are brilliantly done, about how we receive unaccompanied children. And I would take those and I would put them into play immediately. I would have reception centers for children. I would take, I would use the principle, if my child were in that circumstance, had walked 3,000 miles, had, hadn't eaten, had run from terror, how would I want them to be received? And I would set up uh, reception centers, welcome centers, staffed by child welfare professionals. And this is not that heavy of a lift. This is something that we could imagine, and we have lots of people who can help us do this across the professions who would be glad to donate their time. So that's the very first thing I do. Larger border policy, I think, is a much more difficult question, and I don't know what I would do. I know what I wouldn't do. I would never strand people for months and years at a time on the Mexican side of the border. I would never have allowed that problem to develop. I would never have used a specious mental uh, uh, public health law to keep people out for a year. Um, I can give you a long list of things I wouldn't do. I would honor our international obligations, though, to receive refugees into our country and give them an opportunity under our laws with due process, not with expedited proceedings, to make their case for refugee status, for asylum status. If they can't, then they've got to leave. If they can, under law, they can stay. And we've signed international treaties that obligate us to do this. So first I take care of kids, and then I would never do anything at the border that violated our treaty obligations, our civil rights laws, our human rights laws, international laws on human trafficking, on the treatment of children. Um, We're the only country in the world, Brad, other than Somalia, that hasn't signed the UN Convention on the Rights of Children. They are one of two, the other being Somalia. I don't know what I'd do exactly, but I know what framework I would use and what I wouldn't do. Okay. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, you know, I, I think the Republicans are going to demagogue this issue all through the 24 campaign. Um, it's less, it's, not as easy for them as it was two years ago to attack Joe Biden on economic issues because the economy is getting better. Uh, and I think you're going to see more of the culture wars, which means abortion, um, immigration policy, um, and uh, it's not going to be pretty. So I, I guess my question is, you know, you said something about the first thing you said was uh i would treat these immigrant children the same way as we do our own children and my question is why is that so hard 
you know, there, you know, immigration's been a great advantage to this country. I speak as someone um, who uh, both the Bannons came to this country uh, from Ireland uh, in the 1870s. Uh, the LeCount side of the family came from Quebec. Uh, and they and millions of other immigrants made this a great country. And my question to you is, why is we so hostile to immigrants, especially these immigrants at the Mexican border? I don't know why we're so hostile. I think, you know, we've, we have had um, a stir about immigration as long as I can remember. It's not a new issue. What's happened is just what you said. It's been inflated to wep- and weaponized to be used as a political issue. Um, you know, Brad, the, the statistics show that we need the influx of immigrants to keep our workforce healthy. And the Pew um, Trust and other organizations have spoken, have testified before Congress on this, and it gets no play at all. So if people are concerned about the economy, then they might look at immigration differently. I, you know, I think that some of what's at the border is not that hard to fix. And I would go back again to children. Who, who is it who wants children to be in cages and wants children to be held in baby jails run by the Office of Refugee Resettlement? The, the shelters, they're called, run by the Office of Refugee Resettlement, where children go when they're released from the border until they're released to families, are a multi-million, multi-multi-million dollar for-profit business. So one reason that children grind through the system so slowly is that they're, you know, people are profiting off the backs of kids. Okay. You know, one of my things is uh well let me ask you the question directly how much of this is racism uh you know they're not white anglo-saxon protestants uh they're brown uh how much of this is just uh, a symptom of racism and there seems to be a lot of it these days in the united states Oh, definitely. I mean, racism plays a huge part. Back when we were deporting people, and i it's been a while, so I don't remember the statistics, but we were de- deporting Haitians at a hugely much higher rate than any other nationality group, even though they didn't compromise, they didn't comprise that big a percentage of people. We did the same things and we're still doing them to people from Cameroon and people from Mauritania. We don't open the door to the immigration of blacks and certainly browns. I think racism, racism has increased dramatically since Trump became uh, president. Yes. Uh, we, always, we always had racism, but he made it okay to use language and language is a very important indicator of what we feel. He made it okay to use racist language. He promoted people and groups with racist agendas. So people who sat on the edge of those kinds of things felt emboldened and they could come out, you know, they outed themselves and racism is just on a huge, huge rise. And so is anti-Semitism. I mean, uh, I, I think those two things, racism and anti-Semitism are always historically linked. And I think we are seeing a rise in both. And yes, the short answer to your question is racism drives a lot of our immigration policy. You know, the, la- 
the last time uh, we had uh, we have uh, an economist on the show every once in a while, Dr. Robert Shapiro, and uh, he uh, says that one of the issues in immigration is that the uh, workforce, the American workforce, is uh, depleting. Uh, we are going to have record numbers of people on Social Security, according to Dr. Shapiro, but no one who paid into the Social Security system. And so, you know, why can't Americans and Republicans uh, especially uh, see the advantages of immigration uh, rather than it being a big problem? I think that they just ignore it because it can be a hot button issue. You can make immigration very, very emotional. The economy is really flat. Unless you are troubled by the economy, which many people are, it's just not an issue that provokes rage and the same kind of ire you can get when you point a finger at, at immigrants. I think uh, that's- Hope, I want to thank you. Unfortunately, we're running out of time. Uh, our guest in this half hour uh, is Hope Fry, uh, founder and co-executive director of Project Lifeline. Uh, I also want to thank uh, Sarah Jones, the editor-in-chief of Politicus.com USA, for joining us to talk about the Republican presidential race. And, of course, our Crackerjack executive producer, Mark Grimaldi. Stand tall, stand tall and Stay strong in these troubled and turbulent times and look forward to more of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon Mondays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. And you can watch on Twitter.com front slash Brad Bannon and on Facebook.com Deadline DC with Brad Bannon front slash videos. Uh, We'll see you soon.